0: Chapter 11 of The Romance of Modern Invention. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Manning Cross. The Romance of Modern Invention by Archibald Williams. Chapter 11 The Great Paris Telescope. A telescope so powerful that it brings the moon, apparently to within 35 miles of the earth, so long that many a cricketer could not throw a ball from one end of it to the other, so heavy that it would by itself make a respectable load for a goods train, so expensive that astronomically inclined millionaires might well hesitate to order a similar one for their private use, such is the huge Paris Telescope that in nineteen hundred delighted thousands of visitors in the french exposition where among the many wonderful sights to be seen on all sides it probably attracted more notice than any other exhibit this triumph of scientific engineering and dogged perseverance in the face of great difficulties owes its being to a suggestion made in eighteen ninety four to a group of french astronomers by Monsieur Deloncourt. He proposed to bring astronomy to the front at the coming exposition, and to effect this by building a refracting telescope that in size and power should completely eclipse all existing instruments and add a new chapter to the story of the heavens. To the mind unversed in astronomy, the telescope appeals by the magnitude of its dimensions, in the same way as do the Fourth Bridge, the Eiffel Tower, the Big Wheel, the Statue of Liberty near New York Harbor, the pyramids, and most human-made, biggest-on-records. At the time of Monsieur Delancol's proposal, the largest refracting telescope was the Yerkes at Williams Bay, Wisconsin, with an object glass 40 inches in diameter, and next to it, the 36-inch Lick Instrument, on Mount Hamilton, California, built by Messrs. Alvan Clark of Cambridgeport, Massachusetts. Among reflecting telescopes, the prior place is still held by Lord Rosses, set up on the lawn of Burr Castle half a century ago. Its speculum, or mirror, weighing three tons, lies at the lower end of a tube, six feet across and sixty feet long this huge reflector being mounted in meridian moves only in a vertical direction a refracting telescope is one of the ordinary pocket type having an object lens at one end and an eyepiece at the other a reflector on the other hand has no object lens its place being taken by a mirror that gathers the rays entering the tube and reflects them back into the eyepiece which is situated nearer the mouth-end of the tube than the mirror itself. Each system has its peculiar disadvantages. In reflectors, the image is more or less distorted by spherical aberration. In refractors, the image is approximately perfect in shape but liable to chromatic aberration, a phenomenon especially noticeable in cheap telescopes and field glasses which often show objects fringed with some of the colors of the spectrum. This defect arises from the different refrangibility of different light rays. Thus, violet rays come to a focus at a shorter distance from the lens than red rays, and when one set is in focus to the eye, the other must be out of focus. In carefully made and expensive instruments, compound lenses are used which by the employment of different kinds of glass bring all the colors to practically the same focus and so do away with chromatic aberration. To reduce color troubles to a minimum, Monsieur Delon-Cole proposed that the object lens should have a focal distance of about 200 feet since a long focus is more easily corrected than a short one and a diameter of over 59 inches. The need for so huge a lens arises out of the optical principles of a refractor. The rays from an object, a star for instance, strike the object glass at the near end, and are bent by it into a converging beam till they all meet at the focus. Behind the focus they again separate, and are caught by the eyepiece, which reduces them to a parallel beam small enough to enter the pupil. We thus see that, though the unaided eye gathers only the few rays that fall directly from the object onto the pupil, when helped by the telescope, it receives the concentrated rays falling on the whole area of the object glass, and it would be sensible of a greatly increased brightness had not this light to be redistributed over the image, which is the object magnified by the eyepiece. Assuming the aperture of the pupil to be one tenth of an inch, and the object to be magnified a hundred times, the object lens should have a hundred times the diameter of the pupil, to render the image as bright as the object itself. If the lens be five instead of ten inches across, a great loss of light results, as in the high powers of a microscope, and the image loses in distinctness what it gains in size as monsieur de meant his telescope to beat all records in respect of magnification he had no choice but to make a lens that should give proportionate illumination and itself be of unprecedented size at first monsieur de met with considerable opposition and ridicule such a scheme as his was declared to be beyond accomplishment but in spite of many prophecies of ultimate failure, he set to work entrusting the construction of the various portions of his colossal telescope to well-tried experts. To M. Gautier was given the task of making all the mechanical parts of the apparatus. To M. Mantois, the casting of the giant lenses. To M. Desprez, the casting of the huge mirror to which reference will be made immediately. The first difficulty to be encountered arose from the sheer size of the instrument. It was evidently impossible to mount such a leviathan in the ordinary way. A tube, 180 feet long, could not be made rigid enough to move about and yet permit careful observation of the stars. Even supposing that it were satisfactorily mounted on an equatorial foot like smaller glasses— How could it be protected from wind and weather? To cover it, a mighty dome 200 feet or more in diameter would be required, a dome exceeding by over 70 feet the cupola of St. Peter's Rome, and this dome must revolve easily on its base at a pace of about 50 feet an hour, so that the telescope might follow the motion of the heavenly bodies. The constructors, therefore, decided to abandon any idea of making a telescope that could be moved about and pointed in any desired direction. The alternative course open to them was to fix the telescope itself rigidly in position and to bring the stars within its field by means of a mirror mounted on a massive iron frame, the two together technically called a siderostat. The mirror and its support would be driven by clockwork at the proper sidereal rate. The Siderostat principle had been employed as early as the eighteenth century, and perfected in recent years by Léon Foucault, so that in having recourse to it, the builders of the telescope were not committing themselves to any untried device. In days when the handling of masses of iron and the erection of huge metal constructions have become matters of everyday engineering life, no peculiar difficulty presented itself in connection with the metalwork of the telescope. The greatest possible care was of course observed in every particular. All joints and bearings were adjusted with an extraordinary accuracy, and all the cylindrical moving parts of the siderostat verified till they did not vary from perfect cylindricity by so much as one twenty-five thousandth of an inch. The tube of the telescope, 180 feet long, consisted of 24 sections, 59 inches in diameter, bolted together and supported on seven massive iron pillars. It weighed 21 tons. The siderostat 27 feet high, and as many in length, weighed 45 tons. The lower portion, which was fixed firmly on a bed of concrete, had on the top a tank filled with quicksilver, in which the mirror and its frame floated. The quicksilver supported nine-tenths of the weight, the rest being taken by the levers used to move the mirror. Though the total weight of the mirror and frame was 13 tons, The quicksilver offered so little resistance that a pull of a few pounds sufficed to rotate the entire mass. The real romance of the construction of this huge telescope centers on the making of the lenses and mirror. First-class lenses, for all photographic and optical purposes, command a very high price on account of the care and labor that has to be expended on their production the value of the glass being trifling by comparison. Few, if any, trades require greater mechanical skill than that of lens-making. The larger the lens, the greater the difficulties it presents, first in the casting, then in the grinding, last of all in the polishing. The presence of a single air bubble in the molten glass, the slightest irregularity of surface in the polishing, May utterly destroy the value of a lens otherwise worth several thousands of pounds. The object glass of the great telescope was cast by Monsieur Mantois, famous as the manufacturer of large lenses. The glass used was boiled and reboiled many times to get rid of all bubbles. Then it was run into a mold and allowed to cool very gradually a whole month elapsed before the breaking of a mould when the lens often proved to be cracked on the surface owing to the exterior having cooled faster than the interior and parted company with it at last however a perfect cast resulted m d'esprit undertook the even more formidable task of casting the mirror at his works at jumont north france a special furnace and oven capable of containing over fifteen tons of molten glass had to be constructed the mirror six and a half feet in diameter and eleven inches thick absorbed three and three-quarter tons of liquid glass and so great was the difficulty of cooling it gradually that out of the twenty casts eighteen were failures the rough lenses and mirror having been ground to approximate correctness in the ordinary way, there arose the question of polishing, which is generally done by one of the most sensitive and perfect instruments existing, the human hand. In this case, owing to the enormous size of the objects to be treated, handwork would not do. The mere hot touch of a workman would raise on the glass a tiny protuberance, which would be worn level with the rest of the surface by the polisher and on the cooling of the part would leave a depression only one and seventy-five thousand of an inch deep perhaps but sufficient to produce distortion and require that the lens should be ground down again and the whole surface polished afresh Monsieur gautier therefore polished by machinery it proved a very difficult process altogether on account of frictional heating the rise of temperature in the polishing room and the presence of dust to ensure success it was found necessary to warm all the polishing machinery and to keep it at a fixed temperature at the end of almost a year the polishing was finished after the lenses and mirror had been subjected to the most searching tests able to detect irregularities not exceeding one and two hundred fifty thousand of an inch m Gautier applied to the mirror m foucault's test which is worth mentioning a point of light thrown by the mirror is focused through a telescope the eyepiece is then moved inwards and outwards so as to throw the point out of focus if the point becomes a luminous circle surrounded by concentric rings the surface throwing the light point is perfectly plain or smooth. If, however, a pushing in shows a vertical flattening of the point, and a pulling out a horizontal flattening, that part is concave. If the reverse happens, convexity is the cause. For the removal of the mirror from Jumont to Paris, a special train was engaged, and precautions were taken rivaling those by which travelling royalty is guarded. The train ran at night without stopping, and at a constant pace, so that the vibration of the glass atoms might not vary. On arriving at Paris, the mirror was transferred to a ponderous wagon, and escorted by a body of men to the exposition buildings. The huge object lens received equally careful treatment. The telescope was housed at the exhibition in a long gallery pointing due north and south the siderostat, at the north end. At the other, the eyepiece, and a large amphitheater accommodated the public assembled to watch the projection of stellar or lunar images onto a screen 30 feet high, while a lecturer explained what was visible from time to time. The images of the sun and moon, as they appeared at the primary focus in the eyepiece, measured from 21 to twenty-two inches in diameter and the screen projections were magnified from these about thirty times superficially the eyepiece section consisted of a short tube of the same breadth as the main tube resting on four wheels that travelled along rails special gearing moved this truck-like construction backwards and forwards to bring a sharp focus into the eyepiece or onto a photographic plate. Focusing was thus easy enough when once the desired object came in view, but the observer, being unable to control the siderostat, 250 feet distant, had to telephone directions to an assistant stationed near the mirror whenever he wished to examine an object not in the field of vision. By the courtesy of the proprietors of the Strand magazine, we are allowed to quote M. Delancol's own words, describing his emotions on his first view through the giant telescope. As is invariably the case, whenever an innovation that sets at naught old established theories is brought forward, the prophecies of failure were many and loud, and I had more than a suspicion that my success would cause less satisfaction to others than to myself better than any one else i myself was cognizant of the unpropitious conditions in which my instrument had to work the proximity of the river the dust raised by hundreds of thousands of trampling feet the trepidation of the soil the working of the machinery the changes of temperature the glare from the thousands of electric lamps in close proximity each of these circumstances and many others of a more technical nature which it would be tedious to enumerate, but which were no less important, would have been more than sufficient to make any astronomer despair of success, even in observatories where all the surroundings are chosen with the utmost care. In regions pure of calm and serene air, large new instruments take months, more often years, to regulate properly. In spite of everything, however, I still felt confident. Our calculations had been gone over again and again, and I could see nothing that in my opinion warranted the worst apprehensions of my kind critics. It was with ill-restrained impatience that I waited for the first night when the moon should show herself in a suitable position for being observed. But the night arrived in due course. Everything was in readiness. The movable portion of the roof of the building had been slid back, and the mirror of the siderestat stood bare to the sky. In the dark square chamber at the other end of the instrument, two hundred feet away, into which the eyepiece of the instrument opened, I had taken my station with two or three friends, and a tenant at the telephone stood waiting at my elbow to transmit my orders to his colleague in charge of the levers that regulated the siderestat and its mirror. The moon had risen now, and her silvery glory shone and sparkled in the mirror a right declension i ordered the telephone bell rang in reply slowly still slower now to the left enough again a right declension slower stop now very very slowly on the ground glass before our eyes the moon's image crept up from one corner until it had overspread the glass completely, and there we stood in the centre of Paris, examining the surface of our satellite with all its craters and valleys and bleak desolation. I had won the day. End of chapter 11 Recorded by Manning Cross